expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Big Mike Morgan, Jeff Lester, come here. Get over here. I don't know about you guys, but I've had enough. This guy's dangerous. We need to take him out before anyone else gets hurt. He's right. The store closes at midnight. We got lots of merchandise to move. Fellas, I don't know, man. Time to be a man, Morgan. I'll do it. I'm in. I'm in. So am I. Wait, hold on. Wait, 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 wait. This, this is a very, very bad idea, okay? Ned shot Casey on accident. He's not trying to hurt anybody. We need to let the police handle this. Chuck's right. Let the cops handle this. I know you guys work here to buy more, but I'm a doctor, okay? I take risks every day. This is a matter of life or death. Someone needs to man up and take action. Someone needs to be a hero. No, they don't, Devin. Being a hero is being alive to take care of your friends and family. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, February 24, 2011. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. And welcome once again to another edition of Just Right. 519-661-3600 is the number to call. Feedback at justrightmedia.org is the email address to address your comments and concerns to us. And of course, we're back after being away for a week of Black History Month celebrations. And it turns out, Robert, that I guess that and the two Thursdays we get around Christmas seem to be about the only regular Thursdays we get off each year, eh? Yes. And so how'd you enjoy your holidays? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. We're going to be talking about a number of issues today. I guess we're back to white history 51 weeks now. <laughs> oh, I guess. Maybe that's how 11 it months. Yeah. But uh, towards the end of the show, we want to have a Caledonia update. Truth and Reconciliation coming up this weekend. We'll be talking about that. Also want to talk about capitalism and morality today. Interesting article I ran across in the free press that I want to talk about. I'm going to talk about rich and poor, because rich and poor are only relatives, aren't they? And uh, to start off the show, we want to talk about heroes. Are they altruistic? Are they selfish or are they selfish altruists? And that's kind of the question you were posing on this issue, Robert. What's your yeah. conclusion? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, when I when I coined that, I uh, my writings actually took me in completely opposite directions and in various directions. Always happens that way, doesn't it? It does, doesn't it? Once you finally apply yourself to the thinking process and not just shoot off the mouth, you start to say, hey, maybe I don't believe some I of this stuff. run into that stuff so often, you start off an article and... You realize you're an idiot. <laughs> That's happened to me a lot of times. Well, you speak know? for yourself. Well, okay. <laughs> I call it the filtering system. That's okay. true. Yeah. Um, now, this show we usually talk about philosophy, mm -hmm. most most usually um, epistemology. But this time, I'm think I'm going to delve into the realm of ethics and um, talk about hero worship. And many of the themes that we talk about here on Just Right have dealt with the immoral nature of altruism versus the moral virtue of selfishness. The two are diametrically opposed. And I thought it only, pro only proper with the upcoming release on April 15th, at least in the United States, of part one of Atlas Shrugged, the yeah, movie. I can't believe it. That's hard to believe. Finally, after 40 years, they finally got off their duffs and <laughs> came out with a movie. Somebody did anyway. Um, and with that event, I thought it was time we discussed the topic of hero worship and whether a true hero 
is one who sacrifices himself for the good of others, in other words, the altruistic mm -hmm. view, or one who is truly selfish in his actions. And anybody who has read Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged or any of her other fiction like The Fountainhead or Anthem, you'll find that the protagonists, the hero, if you would, are very selfish heroes and heroines. In the positive sense. In a term. very positive yeah. sense. Now, selfish, um, of course, is a very positive term, and of course it's been turned around by the altruists in society. But a bit of background first. The notion of heroes goes back, at least according to some of my research, back to the ancient Greeks. Now, there's always been sort of an ancestral worship, but the, the true use of the word hero is Greek. And the ancient Greeks used it to describe their mythical demigods who personified human virtues. They were endowed with great courage and strength and uh, adored and celebrated for their bold exploits and virtuous behavior and valiant and often tragic deaths in battle, mostly during the Trojan War. For example, you got Achilles, handsome hero of the Trojan War, invulnerable in all of his body except for his he, heel. Yeah, he was a real heel. <laughs> <laughs> got him in the end. Yeah. And uh, Heracles, uh, I think the Romans call him Hercules. Uh, Heracles, the paragon of masculinity with extraordinary strength, courage, and sexual prowess. Penelope, a moral heroine, the embodiment of goodness and chastity. And, for example, Perseus, the first of the heroes famed for his exploits in defeating monsters and demons like uh, the Gorgon, Medusa. Now, generally, these heroes were noted for their ego, their arrogance, their aloofness from mere mortals, and their selfishness. They personified strength of moral character, strength of body, and always beauty. You know, never saw an ugly Greek hero. That's right. <laughs> Most had flaws, however, and failings to match the virtues they were known for. And go back to Achilles, for example, his heel. Great strength and invulnerability, but one soft spot. That, it, that became his end. Um, now, can contrast these heroes. You know, that, 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 that's an interesting phenomenon of itself, isn't it? What's that? That heroes, I don't know if you're getting into this more deeply, but that heroes have to have this flaw. They have to have a flaw. Yes. Is, is that a necessary thing, or is it just... Superman has to have his kryptonite. You know, that's true. Every that's true. every protagonist in every story has to have some sort of um, conflict to resolve within within himself, and at the end of the story, that conflict is usually resolved, and that's what makes a good story and, and a of good course, hero. If he was impervious to all dangers, he couldn't be a hero. So he has to have a flaw, doesn't he? He has to have that danger of something happening to him. Otherwise, people wouldn't be interested in him. Yeah, yeah. interesting. So, so yeah, that's why it wasn't particularly. Yeah, we even carry we even carry that uh, into our current. Heroes. That's an interesting observation. Yeah. I never really liked Superman as a superhero because he was bloody well perfect, except for that kryptonite thing. Mm -hmm. He was, you know, what can he do? Yeah, but you haven't watched Lois and Clark yet. Did Actually, I've never watched Lois no, and Clark. You'd, you'd like that one. Yeah. <laughs> Super, Actually, Superman has a lot of problems in that one, and most of them are named Lois. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's no amount of heroic yeah. deeds that can uh, take on a woman's... Uh, <laughs> problems. But anyway, I'm getting a little ahead of ourselves here mm -hmm. because I was going to contrast these heroes with many of those we have today. Sure. Uh, there are many similarities. Uh, we consider the fallen soldiers of wars to be heroes, for example, for their bravery, bravery and willingness to give their lives what they hopefully thought was a higher value, that being defense of their families and their way of life. But more casually, we think of sports heroes. Mm -hmm. Certainly a, a paler version of the term that uh, than that used for the honored dead, but people to be admired nonetheless for their skills and their strength. 
Also, there are common fictional heroes or protagonists our children come to adore like Harry Potter or Frodo Baggins. You know, these are heroic figures overcoming obstacles. And then, of course, there are the superheroes of, like we just mentioned, comic book legend, Superman, the Amazing Hulk, the Flash, and my favorite is actually Spider-Man. It was like, mine, too, when, was when, right? when it came out, yeah. That I like Spider-Man because that was he the breaker for me. blamed himself for <laughs> his, um, was it uh, Uncle's death? What was he? Yeah. Uncle's death because of his inaction, and he chose to and become a superhero. uncle got killed by somebody that right, he ran into at an earlier time. Yeah. That's right, and he could have stopped him. Mm -hmm. yeah, but he didn't. His uncle died, so there he became a hero to right wrong and to walk a moral path. The admiration we give for others for their outstanding characteristics is a very healthy thing. It gives us models to pattern our behavior after. And many would like to, to right the wrongs the superheroes do. It gives, gives us goals to strive for. Many would like to hit a golf ball, for example, like Tiger Woods. I certainly would. Or defeat a boxing opponent like Muhammad Ali used to do. But to the more central characteristic of heroism, self-sacrifice. Is this a value we would like to emulate or admire? I say certainly not. Let's break it down. Sacrifice, and we've defined this term before mm. on this show, sacrifice is the willing death of yourself so that someone else who you value less than your own life may live. A sacrifice must involve a net loss in value to you. Otherwise, it it's selfish. It wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be a sacrifice. It would, it's exactly. not a sacrifice. Exactly. It's selfishness. So if this person, if this someone else is someone you know that you can't live without and without whom life would be meaningless, then to give up your life so that that other person may love is no sacrifice. You've already determined that for you to go on without that person, your life would have no meaning. Sure. And so therefore, you, you know, bow out so that the other person may live. You determine selfishly that to live without that other person the one you value more than yourself is not a life you wish to live and you die so that he or she may live. So you've not lost much except for, except your life of continued misery is what you've lost. And Certainly what in kind the short of value term, you know, sometimes in the long term, those decisions might be reconsidered if they could be, <laughs> you know, um, mm. because a, a terrible loss is always less easy to bear in the short term than in the long term. And um, often people may sacrifice themselves needlessly, as it's often said. You know, there have been suicides over love issues and things like that. Oh, you sure, know? yeah. And uh, which are needless if you look at them objectively. Well, people yeah. make mistakes, especially in um, emotional times. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, on the other hand, if you die or willingly put your life in mortal jeopardy to save the life of a perfect stranger, one who has no value to you whatsoever, that's a true sacrifice. It's also idiotic. It's not rational, and it's certainly not a trait to be admired or emulated. And it shouldn't be confused with taking a reasonable risk to help a stranger. That's no. a different thing. Exactly. It's when you know you're going to lose and he's going to win. Why would you do that? You know, that's a All different right, so thing. somebody's drowning right next to you, right, in a swimming pool, but you can't swim, but there's a big pole next to you. Okay, you grab the pole, you help the person in. No, no loss to you, very, very minimal risk. 
right? <laughs> but I'm not going to jump in if I can't swim and try to save the person and drown too. That would be foolish. I don't know why it reminds me of that scene in the time machine where the girl Layla was in the river and nobody would save her while she was yes. drowning and, and, and <laughs> the traveler, the time traveler is the only guy that would jump in and get her. Everybody else just sort of stared at her. Of course, right? he happened to be a powerful swimmer, so yeah. it was probably very little <laughs> risk to him. No. Yeah. But now listen to this. The paragon of that kind of sacrifice is who, do you think? Jesus Christ, who in a mystical sense at least, um, is said to have died for the sins of his followers. He gave his life for the lives of those he did not know, apparently. A perfect example of sacrifice. When the Jewish high if, priest... If you, buy, uh, if you buy that that's the reason he did it, he might have had pretty good selfish reasons to do what he was doing. Actually, too. I don't think he had much of a choice. Well, <laughs> I mean, truth. yeah, he did. He didn't have to declare himself guilty before Pilate or whatever, you know, the whole situation. Oh, that's true. He could have copped out. Yeah. Sure. If you believe what you read. <laughs> <laughs> you take the myths as you get them. That's true. Yeah. Um, now, when Jewish high priest um, Caiaphas orchestrated Jew uh, Jesus' death, he said, according uh, to John chapter 11, verse 50, quote, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. Now, of course, Joseph, son of Caiaphas, uh, also known as Caiaphas, um, was the man who uh, orchestrated Jesus' death so that um, peace would ensue because uh, Jesus was a rabble-rouser, so he had him put to death. Loss of one person versus peace throughout the community. And that was a political reason. Now, to put it in the vernacular, what does that mean? It means the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. You'll flood the whole compartment to die. Ah, he's dead already. It's too late. Spock! Ship. Out of danger. Yes. assembled here today to pay final respects to our honored dead. And yet it should be noted that in the midst of our sorrow, this death takes place in the shadow of new life, the sunrise of a new world, a world that our beloved comrade gave his life to protect and nourish. He did not feel this sacrifice a vain or empty one, and we will not debate his profound wisdom at these proceedings. Of my friend, I can only say this. Of all the souls I have encountered in my travels, his was the most... human.
I do not understand the question. What is it, Spark? I do not understand the question, Mother. Well, you're half human. The computer knows that. The question is irrelevant. Spark, the retraining of your mind has been in the Vulcan way, so you may not understand feelings. But as my son, you have them. They will surface. As you wish, since you deem them of value. But I cannot wait here to find them. Why? Where must you go? I must go to Earth to offer testimony. You do this for friendship? I do it because I was there. Spark, does the good of the many outweigh the good of the one? I would accept that as an axiom. Well, then you stand here alive because of a mistake made by your flawed, feeling human friends. They have sacrificed their futures because they believed that the good of the one, you, was more important to them. Humans make illogical decisions. They do indeed. Now, of course, in Star Trek, the Wrath of Khan, while Spock paraphrases Caiaphas, it turns out that his decision to die was a rational or logical one, to put it the way he would. Especially when you can come back to life. <laughs> I don't think he knew that at the <laughs> well, time. No, but still. But he had a guess because he put his chakra sure. in McCoy's head. Of course. Anyway, a lot of people out there don't know what the hell we're talking about. No. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's all mythology, let's face it. Uh, yeah, it's another mythology. It's all, it's all symbolic of the real things that go on in our lives. Now, if he did not act... Everybody on the Enterprise would die, including himself. So, whether he acted or not, he was a dead man, or Vulcan. <laughs> so, when he fixed the Enterprise, he was allowing his friends to live, knowing that at least his death was profitable, for them at least. It was not a sacrifice, in the Christian sense of the word. And when his friends risked their careers to reanimate Spock in Star Trek, probably should have been called Star Trek Reanimator. <laughs> Actually, Star Trek The Voyage Home. They obviously valued Spock more than their jobs or even their freedom, so their actions to save him were not sacrificial. They were not giving up a higher value for a lesser or equal one. They were risking lower values, their careers, for a higher value, a friend's life. Now, if you believe that you must live your life for the sake of others, even to the point where you must die so that a stranger or strangers, however many, who have no value to you may live, then you must believe that your own life is meaningless and valueless, at least a lesser value than a perfect stranger's. You are, in essence, a living corpse, just waiting for an excuse to have someone use you to their ends. Now, this is the basis behind many cults, religions, and, as a segue into Bob's topic, topic coming up next, into our next topic, political beliefs like socialism. Socialism is the natural consequence of the belief that you are your brother's keeper. Your life is valued less than others, and that you must be ready to sacrifice it in the truest sense of the term for another. The wrong kind of hero worship in this case, worship of those who sacrifice themselves for a stranger, is patently anti-life and immoral. The admiration of people who love their own life, who excel at what they do, who cherish their own lives and live them selfishly for their own benefit and ask nothing in return from others, is pro-life and moral. We need heroes and role models. It's good to applaud our great athletes for their skills, to feel good when we see a play well-performed or a story well-crafted into a movie. The feelings we have when we see others excelling should be joy, but hero worship of the other kind, of the kind which says that your life is valueless, 
leads many of us to feel not joy at the accomplishments and successes of others, but jealousy leading to hatred. And it is this feeling of jealousy and hatred that is the root of socialism. It's the foundation for anti-capitalism. To know for yourself some of the proper selfish heroes, I'd encourage you to read the fictional works of one of the greatest exponents of capitalism, Ayn Rand. Howard Rourke, for example, from The Fountainhead, and John Galt from Atlas Shrugged are depicted as moral men living moral, selfish lives, the way life should be lived, guiltless and with joy. Now, that's all I have to say about heroism, except that, again, I want to reiterate that on April 15th in the States, now I don't know anything about the release mm -hmm. in Canada, and I certainly hope that it's going to be released up here very soon in the same date. We've got Atlas Shrugged, part one of three, because it's a huge oh, yeah. tome of a book. And I've read it a couple of times. It's, it's a, actually a really long book to get through. But it's changed a lot of people's lives, and I hope that the movie does the same thing. And going down the list of the cast, I can only recognize a couple of names. So it's a, a real cast of unknowns, at least to me. Uh, Michael Lerner is Wesley Mooch. Uh, mm -hmm. You'll know him to see him. And Armin Shimmerman is Dr. Potter. And mm -hmm. Armin Shimmerman is... Played Quark on uh, Deep Space Nine. Quark yeah. on Next Generation and Deep <laughs> Space Nine. And he was Nine. also a teacher in some other uh, TV show that I didn't actually watch. I forget what show that was. I think he was a teacher, a high school principal or something like that. Oh, You're I, not familiar I with that? that? So you got to tell us about capitalism. Bob. Well, yeah, I think capitalism needs a few heroes too. And it's interesting you're talking about, you know, having about joy at seeing others succeed. Well, I ran into an article here written by a, a Christian <laughs> who does not see joy in others succeeding. And this was Gold, Goldwyn Emerson, who is described as a London professor emeritus of education with an interest in philosophy and the moral development of children, which frightened me after he, reading what he said. Oh, dear. So he, he's going to prove my point here now? Yes. Okay. And his article says, uh, capitalism needs controls to be moral, which was fascinating. And... Um, this appeared in the Free Press February 19th, 2011. And it is rare that I run into an article, Robert, where in every single sentence in the article it's completely offensive to me. <laughs> you know, completely wrong, completely misguided. There's not a sentence in that article that I can even support. Maybe I can support his name and the description of his career, but that's about it. But it's, it reads, capitalism needs controls to be moral, which is just absurd because capitalism, of course, is the only moral economic system ever discovered by mankind. And so when you say you want to control it, that means you don't want it to be capitalism. And he writes, and I quote, extreme differences between wealth and poverty raise important ethical questions about equality, justice, and compassion. In general, good ethical principles urge those with great wealth to share some of it with those who have little. Now, that's not an ethical principle any more than keeping your wealth is an ethical principle. <laughs> you know, that's a choice, right? It, ethics has to do with choice and has to do with consent. And whether you choose to keep your money or give it away, that's the ethical choice. If someone else is forcing you to, that's unethical. And, of course, that's what he's advocating. And he writes that the definition of wealth could be extended beyond money to include housing, food, health care, education, and other measures of well-being. These features represent wealth, but their absence constitutes poverty. Now, that's an interesting comment, isn't it? Uh, you know, housing, food, health care, education, etc., they don't exist in nature. They're man-made things. If they did not exist, then neither would poverty since the term poverty only has meaning relative to wealth. 
right? If we were all yes. living in, a, in poverty, quote, if we all did not have housing, food, health care, and education, which did not exist, let's say, in caveman days or in primitive days or in many primitive cultures, there's no such thing as poverty or wealth except in the very, very minor term where somebody's got a chicken in his, in his house and the other guy doesn't kind of thing. It's always there, someone having something more than the other person. But people ascribe tremendous moral meanings to these differences in wealth that people possess, which are irrelevant to anything. Uh, and he writes... Government policies, such as the collection of income taxes, are meant to equalize or at least narrow the gap between the rich and the poor. Well, this is so wrong, I don't even know where to begin. First of all, by government policies, he means anti-capitalistic, interventionist, and immoral policies, such as a collection of income taxes, which is the punishment of production, um, are meant to equalize the gap. I'm going, that's not why we have income taxes. I mean, this guy's operating totally from altruism, a mental attitude that the writer has, and he uses this as his moral base, you know, that's his moral base of justification, altruism is sacrifice. Income taxes, incidentally, were instituted temporarily to fund the First World War. That's why we had them, not mm -hmm. to equalize incomes between people. Where did he come up with a nonsensical idea like that? He's rewriting history. He's re literally. And it, and it was caused by the socialist altruist thinking that existed in Germany at the time. We had to fight Germany because they were believing the stuff that this guy believes in, right? <laughs> Germany was the West's first, first welfare state where everyone robbed everyone in the name of equality, justice, and compassion. The irony. Right? And taxes are meant to fund the legitimate functions of government and the provision of laws that apply equally to all, regardless of income or wealth. That's what justice is. You don't, you know, you don't have different laws for the rich and poor, but that's what everyone advocates when they want wealth transfer. The writer's calling for laws that discriminate in favor of or against the rich and poor. Where is the justice? There's no justice in that. Now, then he writes, whether this approach is effective in limiting the highest income earners is questionable. Well, I'll question it. Why would you even want to do that under any circumstances? Limit wealth? That's the cause of poverty. <laughs> I mean, how do you solve poverty without wealth? By making everybody poor. Well, that and might... since poverty is relative, since everybody's poor, they're all rich too. And then he says, it may, however, reduce the differences between the living standards of the middle and lower income earners. Now, I ask myself, why would anyone want to do this for any reason? It's, it's just a coercive communistic handicap imposed on the productive for being productive. You know, why not punish the poor guy? Why not put him in jail for being poor? You might as well do that. That's just, that's just as logical as what he's suggesting. And it's outrageous when I say it, isn't it? Yes, it is. <laughs> but nobody thinks it's outrageous to suggest the other guy punish the rich guy yeah. for being virtuous, for taking, for doing all the things that are necessary to accumulate wealth. And it does, you can do a lot of work and not be rich, you know? And then he says, on the other hand, harmonized sales taxes, the HST, do not have the effect of bringing the rich and, rich and poor closer together. Well... I don't know why you'd want to do that, but yes, they do, because by treating both rich and poor equally before and under the tax law, they are being brought closer together. Wouldn't you say? Being In treated equally? <laughs> well, no, the rich and poor, they both pay the same rate. But if they're paying the same rate of, of we're talking about sales tax here, mm. um, obviously the person with more money pays more. It's always that way, right? It's actually harkening uh, back to what I talked about before yeah. in a previous show about the morality of sales tax versus income tax. Exactly. And then he writes, and this is bizarre, except for, except for the relatively few philanthropists, philanthropists, um, plural, those who are wealthy argue that they have worked hard to acquire their wealth. Many prosperous citizens credit wise management, such as planning ahead, 
judicious decisions and expedient savings. And I'm thinking except for, except for the philanthropists, therefore he's saying philanthropists never argue that they worked hard to acquire their wealth. In that case, it might be probable that philanthropists don't feel that they've worked hard for their money or, or they have fortunes for, that they didn't have to work hard for. Because you, you might note that people who do work hard for their money are a lot less likely to give it away for the sake of egalitarianism, you know? Not to alleviate poverty, mind you, but arbitrarily, you know, to level some economic playing field. That's all this guy's arguing for. He's not talking about anybody being poor. It doesn't come up once. He even talks, <laughs> wait till it comes, up, what comes up later. But, you know, the law, the law accomplishes this by being unjust, punishing the earner and rewarding the non-earner, which is the very essence of injustice. And then he says, lower income citizens see the world differently. They view their work as being at least equally hard with few luxuries or comforts. Some educational goals lie beyond their reach. And health care, such as dental work, eye examinations, and nutritious food may not be within their means. Now, I would argue that these, quote, lower income citizens are just as equally entitled to the fruits of their hard work as a person whose hard work produces greater wealth. They're not entitled to the fruits of someone else's labor just because the other guy's fruit is bigger than theirs. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the door swings both ways, pardon the, the assumption there, when plunder becomes a purpose of government, right? Mm -hmm. You think you, you're only, they're only going to steal for, from, from the other guy for you? Is that how you think it's going to work? That's what everybody thinks in their minds, you know. And they realize that, oh, wait a minute, they're ripping me off. Now, I, also, if it's illegitimate to argue that you've worked hard for your money if you're wealthy... Isn't it equally illegitimate to say that when you're poor? Why is, well, we worked hard, but we're poor. Why does that have any weight at all if the other argument doesn't? You see, it's always pushed in one way. Why should anyone else have to pay for another person's luxuries and comforts? That's what he's saying. Lug that's quote, luxuries and comforts. Remember, socialists never talk about poverty anymore because it doesn't exist in the sense that, you know, that, that it does in the non-capitalistic countries. Hence appeals to egalitarianism uh, with comfort and luxury now being entitlements enforced by state edicts. I'm going to take a break now at the bottom of the hour, and just as we go into this next break, I just wanted to mention that this was uh, what we're going to hear now is I was on a broadcast of online viewpoints back on, what's the date here, Eight, August 25th, 2009, two years ago, with Christine Williams and Stuart Parker, who ran for the NDP in a Toronto riding. Very nice guy, but we had a great argument about capitalism in general, and that's what we're going to hear a bit of that on this side of the break, and again on the other side when we come back, and we'll carry on the conversation from there. And we'll do it now. Okay, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask the two of you how you feel about how the West does business when it comes to capitalism. You, you hear one side saying that it's always about the oil and that America is corrupted, this is nothing new, and you hear the other side saying, well, no. America doesn't do this kind of a thing. We're ethically superior compared to the way they may do business in Africa or the Middle East. For example, Libya actually has the largest proven oil reserves in Africa, 42 billion barrels. That's what this country has here. So obviously, it seems to be that Britain has gotten caught with its pants down. But there are those that are going to say, well, I'm really disappointed. This is ethically disgusting what's being done because what's, what's in essence happened is that there's a trade that happened between a terrorist and billions of dollars in oil. 
And the question is, Robert, I'm going to start with you. When it comes to the business of capitalism, is this something that surprises well, all, you? Governments are not involved in business. Governments are governments. Well, they've been negotiating. Governments, governments yes. either. Capitalism is not about honest people or dishonest people. Yes. It's about a system that, is, that naturally arises when people are able to behave rationally and consensually. Those are the conditions you have to have in order to have capitalism. To the degree that those conditions do not exist, then you don't have capitalism. You have some other form of ism, whether it's socialism, fascism, uh, whatever, you, you can name it. Um, but basically, capitalism is the only system that places the individual above the government in terms of individual rights. It doesn't mean the individual can do anything to any other individual. Um, Anti-fraud laws are capitalistic by their nature. Um, you know, the whole idea of consent and not forcing people to do things. Uh, it's a separation of state and economics, really, is what capitalism is. Well, it should be. You're talking a pure form of capitalism here. Well, there are no other forms. Any other form is not capitalism. And okay, that's so you're the problem. Saying, you're saying that the West, that North America, is capitalism, you're saying that not. North America is not capitalist. No, uh, it's, we're it's, a mixed economy. What would you call it? Mixed economy, mixed that's economy correct. That's correct. Stuart? Well, I, uh, it's kind of reminiscent of talking to the, uh, the Trotskyites in the NDP. They'll say, no, there's nothing wrong with socialism because we've never had it. I think we well, have we, to, we, we have socialism. to, I, I, I would suggest that their arguments about the purity of a system are largely identical to your arguments about the purity of capitalism, that it's this ideal that we've never quite reached. The reality is that in every state that has claimed to be capitalist, the government is a major economic actor, and it uses yes. its military, it uses its diplomacy, and it uses its but tax system it is. in it is. order to yes. facilitate these ends. Well, then, what is, the point of a, what is the point of a term that doesn't apply to anything in the real world? Well, I'm willing to wear the failures. I'm willing to wear the failures of governments that tried to live up to the ideas of socialism, called themselves socialists, and let us down. governments are what we're still doing, socialists. We've cast a lot of light on the whole issue of capitalism and mixed economies, but I, I don't want to turn this question into a debate over semantics. So I'll ask you in another way, Robert. Mm -hmm. When you look at the way North America does business, there are those that will say it, 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 it's a wicked economy, it, it, it preys on the, the blood of international folk takes advantage of the Middle East, plunders the West. Who says that? Left-wing people, and, bingo. I, and I don't want I, <laughs> bingo. You said I, I don't like categorizing people 100% like this, but for simplicity, yes, yeah. we often categorize sure. left, right, center, and there is a division. There's a dichotomy between left and right, and you do find people that have a tilt to the left for, that for, will I'll say give you an example that we are a corrupted economy, like like anywhere else. In my daily life, I'll give you an example. Two examples: of capitalist life and socialist life. When I walk into a grocery store or into a variety store, I give the man a dollar, he gives me a dollar exchange, we both walk our, our ways, nobody used a gun, nobody used force, nobody said they had to do anything, that's capitalism. When I get my, my invoice from the government called, in my city, London Hydro, part of the Hydro Bill, I have to pay a debt retirement charge, I have to pay a delivery charge, even if I have $2 of consumption, I still have to pay $50 to that government to pay off their debts because a government has passed a piece of legislation forcing me to do that. There's nothing capitalistic about that in any way, shape, or form. Now, to mix those two things I just mixed and call that one system, 
and say this system is corrupt. Well, which side is corrupt? When you mix black and white, it's the black side that we, that we regard the dark, the evil, that, that, that spoils the light. And that's how it works. That's why, and you can't mix the two. You can't be calling a mixed economy capitalist. Why? Why won't people ever call a mixed economy socialist if it's mixed? You ever ask well, you yourself do that, that all the time? You, you uh, libertarians routinely refer to France as a socialist mm -hmm. economy. All kinds of places where the vast majority of transactions are voluntary are routinely well, accused France, of socialism. Yeah, but, 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 the Obama administration's health plan, in which three quarters of the plan would still be through voluntary transactions with the private sector, mm -hmm. is called socialist. Yes. So the fact is that this label of referring to the mixed as socialist is highly problematic and frequent. So I think States the real lot? question... Do you hear the a lot or just in France? Uh, 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 excuse me? Well, you said uh, libertarians call uh, France socialist, but do they call America socialist? Uh, yes, they uh, do. If you listen to the people at the public meetings right now, that's exactly what they're saying. They're saying socialism has descended there. on America. Because of the mm -hmm. health care debate, uh, mostly. And, uh, but, uh, so what, what I'm saying and the balance. here... And the balance. Oh, well... Whatever Both it is, the point is that the point is that if we get invested in this argument about purity and what to label it, I think we're missing something quite important, which is how the reality is that the West's economies are different, and they're different for a lot of reasons. And the way that we represent certain things in our economy, for instance, in parts of the Arab world, you meet somebody you give some money to their family and the wheels are greased and the transaction takes place. Now what happens here? What happens here is you hire the government relations or public relations firm that is paying the son of the family that owns the company or holds the cabinet ministry $500 an hour, pays the daughter of that family to give some legal advice that doesn't actually involve opening a law book or going to court. There are all kinds of systems. What we tend to do is we go to a greater effort to dress those things up as services, and as a result, there's greater accountability and greater visibility, and I think we do, there's no question that we get less corrupt economies here. Mm -hmm. But I think it's much more a question of how we label things and how we regulate things rather than are these things there or not. Okay, let's go now to Ian on line seven. Hi, Ian, you're on the line. That was how that debate went back in uh, August 25th, 2009. And welcome back. You're listening to CHRW 94.9 FM where we're talking about capitalism. And, uh, Robert, it's interesting that people generally judge socialism by its imagined potential results, which never occur, and they judge capitalism for being moral. They don't look, or they condemn capitalism for being moral, right? It's totally irrational, of course. It, it, it's completely a, a situation. And the argument about the purity of, of the terms, as if the terms were unimportant because we live in a mixed economy, if you can't tell the difference between which, which part of your mix is socialist and which part is capitalist, you can't resolve these issues at all. It's not an issue of semantics. It's of critical, critical importance to being able to think about the whole issue. If you can't tell the difference between social and ca socialism and capitalism, or it doesn't make a big difference, or you blur everything together, like, he, like everybody does, everybody thinks that government activity is, you know, capitalistic. It is not. Um, parts of it are, the parts that protect life, liberty, and property. That's what the function of government is supposed to be. But beyond that, anything the government does is no longer capitalistic. And that's the basic point. Um, you know, it's interesting that uh, this writer, again, getting back to the article that we were talking about from uh, Goldwyn Emerson, 
He talks about uh, the wealthy speak fondly of the capitalist system, a term used almost synonymously with democracy, although capitalism also flourishes within communism and dictatorships. Unfortunately, the inequalities between wealth and poverty in the Western world capitalism have grown in the past 40 years. Well, of course, there's an inequity in the Western world because that's where you can create wealth. In the, in the Eastern world, they, they, they keep everybody down, right? So I guess you and I must be really wealthy, Robert, because... Uh, Relatively okay, speaking. Because we're, uh, you know, we're pro-capitalist. I don't know. I, I Personally, I don't know of a wealthy person who speaks fondly of the capitalist system, really. Isn't that ironic? Yeah. It's usually the wealthy who actually de- decry capitalism. That's right. It doesn't mean that such people don't exist. It's just in my 30-plus years as a public advocate of capitalism, I've never been approached by a wealthy person who really wanted to help out. But what's really incredulous in this statement is that the writer believes only Western world capitalism creates inequalities, you know. Egypt must be capitalistic by his definition then, you know. (laughs) Uh, The inequities between rich and poor in non-capitalist countries, though, are systemic. In a capitalist country, any, any individual is free to move from one economic group to another based on his or her abilities or lack thereof. And, you know, capitalism does not exist, let alone flourish within communism, let alone in dictatorships. The principles of capitalism are individual rights, private property ownership, consent, and private, pro- uh, private contract. The principles of communism and of all dictatorships are group rights, if there are any rights at all, or no rights, government ownership, control, coercion, forced social programs, and government edicts. So, you know, the solution to poverty is to create wealth, but that's not what they want to do. So there's so much more to say on this, and I will on future shows. But right now we're going to take a break, and when we come back, after this break, we're going to talk about something that's going to be coming up in Caledonia this weekend. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. There's a store that I seen this one time that had the greatest name in all of retail. All of retail? Yes, all of it. Here's the name of the store. The name of the store is Elegant Balloons. I would like to say it again, just because I like the sound of it. Elegant balloons. Uh, Yes, hello. Um, I'm hosting a very important party at my mansion this evening, and uh, I'll be entertaining some foreign dignitaries, heads of state and the like. I wanted to spruce the place up a little bit. Tell me, what do you have in the way of balloons? Well, sir, we have this model here, which is red, as you see, and uh, it also comes in a blue. Oh, my God! Those balloons are gauche! I'm not hosting a free-for-all for a bunch of hill people who are going to eat off the floor with their hands. Where are your elegant balloons? Yeah, that was fun. Of security at the airport, you know, and I resent every time I go to the airport, I get searched, and I resent that being native. Where's an Indian gonna hijack a plane anyway? <laughs> Take me to Hobima, you know. <laughs> so I'm sitting on the airlines, you know, in the middle seat here, and there's a redneck sitting on each side of me. 
And I'm thinking, you might have stole my land, you might have ripped off my culture, but you're not getting these damn armrests. I'll tell you that much. Welcome back to Just Right. Where on the line we have two callers in uh, who are going to talk to us today about Caledonia. Gary McHale is exec- executive director of CanAce, Canadian Advocates for Charter Equity, and Mark Vandermoss, who's founder of the Caledonia Victims Project. Welcome to you both. Uh, Hi, thanks how for are having you me guys on. doing? Good to hear. Good to talk to you again. You too. And uh, regular listeners, listeners to our show would uh, remember that a few weeks back you were actually on our show in studio. Uh, to talk about Caledonia, and now you've come up with um, a Truth and Reconciliation Rally. Can you tell us about that? Well, I think um, it's now starting Monday. The Monday will be the fifth anniversary of uh, the occupation in Caledonia, oh. in which uh, obviously serious crime has taken place, and a lot of the residents uh, feel victimized, and many were hurt, assaulted, and uh, there's one gentleman with permanent brain damage. And so we think it's time that the government and uh, all those that were involved to play a role in starting the healing and reconciliation. Now, the government wants to do it by just simply telling everybody, well, forget about the past and move on, where we believe that, uh, you know, those who are responsible for what took place should apologize, and then you can have open dialogue, and then people can learn to uh, heal and move forward. And and so on uh, Sunday, we're going to have a rally to start that process, and asked the McGinty government and the OPP and Six Nations to issue an apology to the victims of, of what took place. Now that event is actually Sunday, February 27th, that's this Sunday, at 1 p.m. outside the Lions Hall in Caledonia, and I guess you're inviting anybody who's interested to attend that, correct? Uh, yes, we are. Okay. Now you're also going to be erecting a monument, according to uh, have your press release here, you're going to erect a monument on the uh, Douglas Creek Estates that will affirm for Ontarians that race-based policing and violence against innocent people are not legitimate tools in a free and democratic society, and never again will any police force be allowed to discriminate on behalf of or against any person or group because of their race, color, sex, etc. Can you tell us a little about that, about the monument? Well, well, Mark, well, actually, uh, I'm I'm the one I'm going to be building it uh, over the weekend. It'll be about five and a half feet tall, um, and uh, it'll be made out of plywood, uh, painted gray, and uh, we'll be putting on uh, on the top uh, segment there uh, uh, OPP apology, uh, Six Nations apology, Ontario government apology for all to see. It'll symbolize the fact that we want apologies from those three groups so that we can move forward uh, with the monument. With 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 heal with really with re, with true healing and reconciliation, I mean it has to be done in a, in an environment of truth and justice, uh, not the lies and and uh, uh, that we've seen in the past. Now now, uh, Bob Metz here, guys. Um, who who's actually being asked to quote tell the truth and who's being asked to reconcile with whom? Is that an easy question to answer, or is that? Um, well, right now, I mean, the, even after four months after Christy Blassford's book, uh, Helpless, was published, the OPP still insists, uh, officially, uh, the brass insists, that there's no such thing as race-based policing. <laughs> they don't really admit that they ever did anything wrong. Uh, they, they try to publicly say that they've investigated every crime and that uh, any time there was supposed to be charges, they laid them. But, of course, uh, even Commissioner Fantino in court testified that some of the events weren't investigated. Some of the events, they didn't lay charges. So there's a difference between what they tell the public, both the OPP and the McGinty government, 
and of course even Six Nations. I mean, they try they constantly say that it was a peaceful protest. Well, you can't have attempted murder and some of brain damage and and c- continue to lie to the public that it was a peaceful protest. So uh, those three groups need to come to terms with with the truth of what they did to other people. The OPP did create a race-based policing policy. The McGinty government did allow the OPP to violate the charter rights of everybody living in Caledonia, and Six Nations willfully made a decision to use Caledonia as a, some kind of a, a, a stunt to force the government to negotiate. And, and Caledonia should not have been used that way uh, to further their agenda. Now, for anybody and out what's there. really sad is that these people are all trying to pretend that nothing happened. I mean, it took us five years um, before find, uh, of documenting this thing full-time, uh, before Christy Blatchard came along, looked at our evidence, checked it out herself, wrote a book about it, and now we have the OPP pretending it, uh, nothing bad happened, and now we have uh, various factions on Six Nations all, pre- all, all trying to accuse her of being racist for telling the victim's stories. Um, but still, it's hope. We, it, we have the stories of the victims now are recorded. The evidence is irrefutable. It includes evidence from the Ontario Provincial Police Association president that, yes, there was race, racial policing. Yes, the police did not, did not enforce the law. And uh, so now we feel it's time to force the, all these three parties to acknowledge the role and so that we can really move on. You know, I mean, that an, was our goal all along. For and anybody out there who time. hasn't read Helpless, it's, um, it's a very disturbing read, and I'm just going through it right now, and I find it, it's very, very difficult to read because of the emotions it brings up, the violence that went on there, and for anybody police or whoever to say that nothing went on there and that it was a peaceful demonstration. They are patent liars, according to the uh, information that's in Christy Blatchard's book, Helpless. So, yes, there's definitely need, uh, a need for truth here. And just to, Hel- just Helpless to re- is just the tip of the iceberg sure. that, that we have and uh, the, the evidence that we have. And I can tell you, the feeling that you felt reading Helpless is the exact same one that I felt um, you know, almost four years ago, when I started investigating uh, the Ipperwash uh, inquiry from a, with the help of a resident up there, and I read a chronology from, it was about 40 pages long. It was a chronology of, the, of what happened there from the perspective of a community leader, very much like Gary and, and myself. And she submitted it to the Ipperwash inquiry to, because they were supposed to be studying violence against innocent, you know, during land claims. Well, they refused to publish it. They refused to allow her to testify. They didn't let anybody, to, any res, non-native resident to testify. And as I was reading that document, I had to put it down because I was crying too much that Canadian citizens live that way. And when we went to, to the lawyer's office to look through, and I'm talking about boxes and boxes and boxes of evidence, and we pulled out 400 pages of, of, of just some of it. We still could go back and get more. I broke down in tears in the lawyer's office with this woman, and I was crying, and and I was saying, how could my government do this to people, abandon them? And it happened again in Caledonia. There can't be any more of these. It can't go on. Now, have you you guys uh, actually invited McGinty or someone from the Liberal government, the OPP, or from Six Nations to show up for this reconciliation? Uh, Yeah, letters, letters were sent out back on June 6th of this year. Uh, to McGinty, January sixth. Uh, January sixth. Sorry, uh, to uh, Don McGinty, to uh, Commissioner Chris Lewis, and another letter to uh, the Six Nation Band Council, outlining that uh, you know their involvement and what took place, 
and asking them to prepare an apology for to enable people to start the healing because you know with residential schools the federal government has apologized and we all accept that that's needed when when an injustice occurs mm-hmm. and so it seems reasonable that uh, that uh, these three groups should issue an apology i've invited them all to appear on uh, sunday to 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 play a role in this and uh, we will wait to see if any of them show up and Your expectations well, McGinty's already sent me a, a letter thanking me for the invite and keep him informed, but uh, he's unavailable on uh, that particular date. Something more important, I imagine. Now, <laughs> now if, if, if none of them show up, what would you realis- realistically hope to accomplish with the march then? Well, we, we also we do have uh, the vice president of the uh, Canadian chapter of the International Free Press Society, Mary Lou Ambrosio, mm-hmm. is going to be speaking. Been a guest and, on this show uh, before. I'll let Gary talk to you about what we're going to do uh, after that. Well, I think uh, I think the whole issue is, uh, first of all, to inform the three parties that uh, that the public de- is demanding that they issue an apology. Like right now, they they think they don't ever have to pay attention to the victims in Caledonia. So the first step is to inform them, and that's what we've done. The second step is to make a public event so that they realize that this is not going away. Because you know, let's be truthful. It took how long did it take the federal government to apologize for residential schools? I'm not naive to think that somehow this is going to happen overnight, but we got to start somewhere. And uh, I can tell you this isn't going away. Um, Gary doesn't even know this yet, but we've received, I've received permission um, from, do you remember, the? I don't know if uh, listeners will uh, recall the uranium screening scandal up in Ottawa where Minister Moore had to get involved yes. uh, to, to uh, uh, ensure that the movie Uranium was uh, screened by, uh, by the... Uh, uh, Free Thinking Film Society. Uh, Fred Litwin, the founder of that, has uh, uh, invited us to speak uh, on March 22nd there, and we're going to be talking about Caledonia. We're bringing Caledonia residents there. So any politician um, who thinks that this is going away, it is not going away. Excellent. Now, just out of curiosity, is is the land in question still under occupation? Is there still some sort of tension in the area as there was a year ago? Or five years uh, well, there ago, must be still tension because the OPP met with me this morning at eight o'clock, and uh, lo and behold, as of as of last night, uh, the uh, pro-native side have suddenly decided that they're going to do a protest one hour before hours in exactly the same location. So they're going to be at the Lions Hall uh, where we were going to be, which uh, would have been about uh, you know half a mile away from uh, D.C. the occupied land. And of course, they uh, in their press release they state quite clearly that they will stay and mingle amongst our people and confront us. So the OPP's official position this morning is that uh, uh, they, we were not allowed to change where we can hold our event, and if we try to attempt to uh, go anywhere near D.C., I was told this morning I would be arrested. Me personally, he, he couldn't name any other person, but he said that he had received instructions from his superiors that Gary McHale will be arrested by the orders of the Ontario government. We obviously have a long way to go for peace and reconciliation. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. So once again, um, just for our, our listeners too, we want to remind them that both of you have appeared live as in-studio guests just this past December 14th. And if you want to hear their incredible story and experiences surrounding the Caledonia issue, be sure to check it out at www.justrightmedia.org. And at that time, we asked our guests at the time to keep us up to date with their progress and plans, and that's what they've done today. So once again, that's 
Sunday, February 27th, this Sunday coming. I understand the weather's going to be pretty warm, too, like up around plus 7. Mm-hmm. That'll be great. And it's outside the Lions Hall in Caledonia. Is At that one, it, guys? 1 p.m. Yes. 1 p.m. Well, good luck with that, and we'll keep in touch, and we'll want to touch base with you again after the event to see how it went. Well, thank, thank you for you. having us, Rob, okay. uh, Robert and, uh, and Bob. Very Thanks, much guys. appreciate it. Thank you. you we'll bet. catch you later. Bye-bye. You bet. Bye. Well, there you go, Robert. More trouble out in Caledonia coming this weekend. Again, a Uh, long way to go. I'll tell you. Well, that's it for today's show, folks. We've got to go and get the heck out of here now. And we're on our way out now. And we'll see you next week. Because until then, you know what to do. Be right, act right, stay right, and be right back here. Hey, we'll see you then. Fade into color. Color into black and white. Under the Everything will be Three million homeless? I don't mean to bum you people out, but a dog can wander around Manhattan not belonging to anybody. You can call the Humane Society, they will come and get that dog. But a human being? Nobody to call. (laughs) Now maybe I'm a bleeding heart liberal, but I think we need a Humane Society for humans. I think these people should be rounded up, given shelter, and if, after six weeks... What are you laughing at? Give them more food and shelter. What did you think I was going to say?